You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Garrett M. Graff is the former editor of Political Magazine and a contributor to Wired and CNN. He's the author of The Threat Matrix, Raven Rock, The Only Plane in the Sky, and Watergate, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His new book is UFO, The Inside Story of the U.S. Government's Search for Alien Life Here and Out There. Thank you for joining me, Garrett. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a wonderful book. It's a symphonic quilt of narrative stories with great characters. It's a compelling page turnabout. One of the central mysteries of human existence, really. And at the center of it is the idea of the UFO. And you follow the idea of the UFO uh, through, you know, much of recent U.S. history. And I think what's really interesting is in your approach, the UFO is a mystery, but what this book really is about is uses the UFO as a sort of Rorschach test for humanity asking itself, what are we? And throughout this book, humanity comes out pretty well. It, it's really a book that celebrates, you know, the joy of the questing mind and people faced with an unanswerable question, which is still unanswerable, um, who come out ahead and, and show their best side. And I think that's a really wonderful way to approach this book, this story. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you so much. I, I mean, that was, to me, one of the biggest surprises of writing this book was realizing how much of the story of aliens is really not about the aliens at all. That, you know, this is mostly actually a story about us and humanity's quest to understand, as you says, you know, one of the most fundamental biggest questions of our existence. I mean, this question of are we alone has to be one of the, you know, two or three biggest questions of humanity. I mean, up there with, you know, what happens to us after death? And, you know, is there a God? You know, questions, by the way, that may not be totally unrelated to the question of are we alone as well? And I came at this subject as you mentioned in that introduction, as a national security writer. Like I am not a uh, ardent, lifelong ufologist. I am not a, uh, you know, I was not born and raised on Star Trek. Um, To me, this story started as a national security story. And, you know, what what is the history of the government's attempts to understand what UFOs actually are. And I, I found in the midst of that research a much more spiritual side to the book and the subject than I ever imagined. You know, as a kid, I grew up, cut my teeth on books by many of the names mentioned in this book. I, I was a precocious reader, so back in the late 60s and early 70s, I was reading Hynek, I was reading uh, Frank Edwards, Willie Lay, Charles Ford, all of those kind of books appealed to me. And I really got my start um, from my parents subscribed to both Life and Look. And mm-hmm. in those magazines, now late 60s and early 70s, when they were often had big, color layouts of, you know, photos from UFOs and UFO flaps. And so I've always kind of seen the thing from one side. What I really loved about this book was from the beginning, you showed us how the government was reacting to, to the UFOs. On one hand, everybody else was making all sorts of theories, and the government had a really fascinating look. The U.S. government in particular had a fascinating reaction, which you 
document. It's so wonderful to read. It's really refreshing to read the national security response to this because that's how we saw it from the beginning and in a sense how we're still seeing it right now. Yeah, absolutely. And this book um, in some ways bore more relationship to some of my other works which focus on Cold War history than I, again, I realized going into it because the story of the U.S. government's interest in UFOs very much is a story of Cold War anxiety and that the, you know, what you might call the modern UFO age, the modern age of the flying saucer dates to the summer of 1947 and when Kenneth Arnold, Idaho businessman flying his plane near the uh, Mount Rainier in the in the Pacific Northwest sees what he later describes as nine flying saucer shaped objects moving at tremendous speed. And he that story gets picked up by the media and becomes the sort of national fascination in the summer of 1947. You have sightings, you know, all over the United States, up into Canada, something like 34 different states report flying saucer sightings that summer. And it it is a real moment of tension and concern for the government, not because the government imagines that these are aliens, but because the government in the summer of 47 is deeply concerned about the start of the Cold War and the possibility in the government's mind, not that, the, again, these are alien spacecraft, but that they are Soviet spacecraft, that they are, you know, secret airplanes being built by Russia as part of, uh, you know, a program with kidnapped Nazi rocket scientists, because what is the U.S. doing in the summer of 47? We are trying to build rockets and missiles and secret spacecraft with the knowledge of the V-2 and Nazi rocket scientists that we have brought over from Europe and plopped into places like Los Alamos and the White Sands Proving Grounds. And so the U.S. is deeply concerned that Russia is ahead of us in this technology and the this, this sort of early stages of what we now call the space race. And the government is really in a panic over what these flying saucers are. Um, and that's the summer in 47 that you have the creation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Central Intelligence Agency, the modern Department of Defense, the uh, Secretary of Defense, and then the creation of the Air Force as a standalone military service branch, which really confronts as its first crisis this question of what are UFOs? What are flying saucers? And, you know, one of the sort of funny aspects of this history, as you go back and understand it, is UFO was originally popularized by the military as a way to destigmatize the conversation of 47 around flying saucers and that they wanted to sort of have a more serious conversation about what flying saucers could be and so started calling them ufos and now of course you know fast forward across a couple of decades and the government has had to rebrand it it again now as uaps unidentified anomalous phenomenon as a way to destigmatize the conversation around ufos you know one of the things i think you do really well in this book is create characters and character arcs and one of my favorite, and a big, uh, a, a man who plays a huge influence on our perception of UFOs is a man named J. Allen Hynek. And he, his character arc is really, uh, gives an insight into the way the United States has regarded this. So talk about finding out these, you know, characters and you know, setting them in the book. I mean, the, the work you do here is really amazing because it's you make a very, very complicated subject seem very clear. Oh, thank you. Um, J. Allen Hynek is, you know, 
certainly I think the most fascinating character in in this book with the possible exception of Carl Sagan. Um, and and in fact, the the sort of dual intellectual duel between them over the course of the 70s and 80s is in some ways the backbone of the intellectual debate at the core of this book. Um, and J. Allen Hynek is this uh, very well-respected astronomer um, in the 1940s who is working at the time at Ohio State University. And the Air Force shows up on his doorstep in the late 1940s to ask for his help in their new UFO study project. There's sort of a series of projects that the Air Force runs in the 40s that evolve from what's first known as uh, Project Sign into then Project Grudge and then Project Blue Book, which ends up running um, uh, for about 20 years. And, trying to understand the mystery of UFOs. And they want J. Allen Hynek's help in trying to understand what the sort of, what percentage and what chunk of UFO sightings are normal astronomical phenomena. J. Allen Hynek's, you know, describes himself as, uh, you know, jokingly not as the world's best astronomer, but the astronomer closest to the Air Force Base at Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. And so he this begins what is really comes to be the defining intellectual quest of J. Allen Hynek's life. And he he spends the next quarter century working on this subject alongside the military going to a lot of UFO sightings, interviewing a lot of UFO witnesses, um, studying a lot of encounters, and becomes increasingly convinced that there is something here. Not necessarily that these are aliens, but that there's something here. And then he ends up, as the military's project winds down in the 1970s, he leaves, founds what uh, is actually still running today and is known as the Center for UFO Studies, um, you know, probably the most respected independent think tank or study uh, study center on UFOs, and writes what, what becomes really the definitive um, book on UFOs, um, where he lays out what we now uh, the, the nomenclature that everyone now uses of close encounters of the first kind, second kind, third kind, and then actually goes on to, uh, you know, that becomes the basis for the Steven Spielberg movie. Um, and J. Allen Hynek actually ends up with a bit cameo in the movie as, you know, the person who invents the term. And it becomes, I, I think this, uh, he you know, in some ways he's radicalized over the course of his career from being a real skeptic when the Air Force first appears on his doorstep in the 40s to being a real believer by the end of the 70s and the 80s when he ultimately dies um, that, you know, there there's something out there, could be aliens, um, and, you know, UFOs are real. You know, for me too, uh... I really like that the um, reaction, the early reaction of the government was so interesting because they weren't just completely condemning the the science. They, they were actively worried about it, you know, and, and not without reason because we, we had uh, something called Operation Paperclip where we had just drafted it grabbed essentially every Nazi scientist we could get our hands on and have them come out and talk to us and say, you know, what's going on? Help us help us build all of your rockets. And we knew the Russians were doing the same thing, as you pointed out. So uh, talk about, you know, the... And, and the attitude of the government in some ways hasn't changed all that much so over the course of 50 years we still really don't know anything uh concrete so talk about you know the way the the government reacted and also the way the government 
presented itself, which is rather different. And the forces, the people who are coming out, you know, in contrast to the government. Yeah. And that to me, you know, is one of the real core challenges of trying to uncover, you know, the truth or something approximating the truth over the course of this book and the 80 years of this story is the government absolutely is covering up knowledge about what UFOs are, you know, what its understanding of what UFOs are, um, what it detects, what it doesn't detect. And there are some there are some obvious and understandable reasons for some level of the that cloak of secrecy. Um, you know, some chunk of UFO sightings are our own government's secret technologies and planes being, uh, you know, tested and flown over the United States. Um, a, the the CIA goes back and later calculates that perhaps fifty percent of all UFOs sightings in the 1950s are the U-2 spy plane, um, which was very much a UFO, um, an unidentified flying object. Um, You know, you see that later in the tests of the SR-71 Blackbird, the A-12 Oxcart, the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter. um, And presumably, you know, that's continuing to this day. You know, the the uh, the first test flight of the B-21 stealth bomber uh, just happened this fall. And, you know, there are still secret development plans out there. Um, some chunk of this is also adversary technology being tested against us. Um, you know, those flying saucers in the 1940s didn't end up being secret Soviet spacecraft. But right now, you know, you are seeing Russia and China and Iran test new drones that we don't know about. Um, And, uh, you know, the US is is cagey and squirrely about what it understands about some of those foreign technologies that it's detecting and sensing. Where, Where it gets more complicated, I think, and, you know, in some ways, this is the question that J. Allen Hynek also struggles with throughout his work is, is the U.S. government covering covering up meaningful knowledge about UFOs being related to alien civilizations or, you know, it, it, non-human intelligences, NHIs, as, as some people refer to them, um, or, you know, extraterrestrial civilizations that were, uh, that are exploring here or that we're in contact with. And... There's very little reason, I think, to believe that the government is covering up that level of knowledge. Um, And instead, what I think I come away with that the sort of core, the center of the government's cover up of UFOs and sort of squirreliness and talking about UFOs is that it actually really doesn't understand what UFOs are, that it is in many ways just as puzzled about what these sightings are and these encounters are as the rest of us are, and that that's actually a very uncomfortable place for the bureaucracy to be, that it is a subject, you know, where we spend, you know, in today we spend roughly a trillion dollars a year on national defense and homeland security and intelligence and for the bureaucracy at the end of the day to sort of say like well i don't know what those things are um actually it is a pretty difficult thing for a bureaucracy to admit um and one of the one of the things that sort of stood out to me, actually one of the reasons I got interested in the subject in the first place was in December 2020, um, John Brennan, who was just wrapping up a better part of a decade as the CIA director and White House Homeland Security Advisor, gave this interview to a DC blogger um, named Tyler Cowen, where he said in terribly tortured syntax, um, effectively, Uh, There's stuff out there flying around that we don't know what it is. It puzzles us. 
and it the phenomenon may constitute something that some might regard as something approaching a new form of life and it's like a terribly tortured sentence but it it expressed to me a sort of level of wonder and puzzlement that felt unique and important to me um because this was someone who had been CIA director. This has been someone who had been White House Homeland Security Advisor. And that it, when John Brennan woke up in the morning with a question, there was a massive apparatus whose job it was to go out there and answer the question for him. And so for him to leave office and think that there is sort of still a core puzzle here that he doesn't understand, that felt to me like an important notice that something was worth digging into more deeply. And that's really what launched me on writing this book in the first place. You know, one of the things I really like about this book is that it demonstrates again and again that when confronted with the unknown, the humans who are doing that, whether they're just civilians out there who are curious, you know, like Hynek or writers like Frank Edwards, or people in the government, their reaction by and large is to try to figure it out. It's a positive reaction. They, we are seeking knowledge. And I think as a whole, humanity comes off pretty well in this book. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's really a heartening look at, at humanity. If uh, UFOs are a Rorschach test for humanity, you know, we, we pass. Yeah. And I think that that to me is part of what makes this such an exciting topic to talk about is the way that we have so much still to learn about the world and the universe. And I think the thing that I come away from this book and, and writing and research with more than anything else is the sense that we need to be really humble about both our place in the universe and how much of the universe we actually understand that the world and the universe are probably much weirder than we currently understand. And that there is in, in so many of the people who are engaged in what, uh, you know, scientists call the search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI there, there is so much, uh, you know, optimism and wonder and hope wrapped up in that quest that I find it really inspirational to see these people, you know, diving in with these open and curious minds. And to me, I think part of the challenge of talking about this subject is that all four of the following statements are most likely true. There are aliens out there. They are probably too far away for us to have contact with. UFOs are real. And that there are likely fascinating answers wrapped up in understanding what ufos are even if they don't turn out to be aliens and i think most people who are engaged in this subject uh who write about this subject end up trying to you know argue one of those four points or disprove them or debunk them or you know uh, intellectually reject the premise um when all four of them can be true at the same time and most likely are you know part of this uh quest over the last 25 years is the way that our understanding of the universe has evolved from the 1990s when we did not know that there was a single planet outside of our solar system to now understanding that nearly every star effectively every star probably has planets 
and that there are likely, um, you know, scientists estimate today in the neighborhood of one sextillion, that's a billion trillion habitable planets across the universe. And that the odds are astronomically on the side of, you know, there being life and intelligent life out there, even though we might be very much on our own in our own neighborhood in our galaxy. You know, one of the things I think you do masterfully well is to weave in two topics that seem like they should go together, which is SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and UFOs. In a sense, they're, they're very different subjects, but you weave them together really well into this great social history. I mean... This is a fabulous look at the way, even though our science and our technology have just evolved in incredibly, humanity itself is a bit behind. So talk about, you know, looking at the intersection of human foibles and human and humanity's incredible achievements. I I mean, this is a book that super embraces opposite ideas. Well, and and I think that that's, uh, again, part of what is really fun about this topic is coming to understand just how weird the world is and just how we probably misunderstand our place in it. That, um, you know, Hollywood has given us these two, uh, you know, two or three scenarios of first contact. Um, you know, you have the Jodie Foster contact movie where you have this unambiguous radio message from another civilization. Um, you have the, uh, you have the Independence Day uh, you know, alien spacecraft appearing over, uh, the white house or, you know, some other major landmark and, you know, take me to your leader, or they're here to conquer us and invade us and harvest our organs for food. Um, and then you have sort of the ET version, which is the, you know, sort of shipwrecked lone survivor, um, you know, from an exploratory craft. And the actual answer turns out to be that our first understanding of an intelligent civilization and that we are not alone in the universe is almost certainly going to be much more, uh, much more mundane and much more ambiguous. And it is going to be what Harvard astronomy chair Avi Loeb compares to the equivalent of like an empty plastic bag blowing through our civilization, or blowing through our solar system from another civilization. Like we'll sort of look out at it, we'll detect this object and be like, well, that's not from our Walmart. Like whose Walmart is that bag from? And we're going to probably sort of likely first see some piece of space trash or some type of, you know, long forgotten probe akin, by the way, to the types of probes that we have sent out into interstellar space, like the Voyager and Pioneer spacecrafts, which, you know, will fly on across the solar system, fly across the universe for eons until, you know, maybe crashing into a planet someday. Um, And that one of the really uh, sort of funny things about understanding how those first contact scenarios come to us from Hollywood is the idea that, you know, there are probably aliens out there and they probably don't care about us at all. And that we are, you have in ufology this idea that's called sort of the presumption of mediocrity, which is that we are we are a extremely uninteresting and young civilization on a sort of ordinary 
planet in an ordinary solar system, you know, somewhere in the outer suburbs of a pretty ordinary galaxy of the Milky Way. And that probably no one knows we're out here. Probably no one cares. And that there's sort of this incredible human-centric version of the first contact scenario that where we believe that we would be worthy of another civilization traveling across interstellar space to come and try to be our friends or conquer us or spread a message of peace or what have you. Um, and that to me, you end up with these like really profound and interesting questions wrapped up in this. One being, you know, there might have been advanced intelligent civilizations out there that we have just missed that, you know, we're a pretty young solar system. We are, our solar system is about four and a half billion years old uh, in a 14 billion year old universe. And the James Webb Space Telescope, which is really, you know, day by day, year by year, revolutionizing our understanding of the universe, uh, it is, it, it, it has photographed a galaxy that formed as soon as 300 million years after the Big Bang, after the creation of the universe. And so, you know, a universe that is, you know, 8 billion years older than uh, our own, you know, 8, eight to 10 billion years older than our own. And so you end up with this, like these incredible thought experiments of, you know, there might have been a billion year intelligent civilization, you know, something that would be, you know, so much bigger than anything that we could possibly imagine, something that would be so much more advanced than anything that we could possibly dream of that has come and gone and risen and fallen before our solar system ever began to gather out of dust in the first place. And so, you know, the possibility that, you know, we might have just missed our neighbors in the galaxy uh, or neighbors in the universe by like a billion or two or, or three billion years. You know, one of the real pleasures of this book are the human stories and the interlocking narrative. I mean, you take us from, as you point out, uh, Kenneth Arnold essentially in 1946 to now in, in 2023. That's almost 80 years. That's a long time. Talk about, re, you know, going into the research and finding out how the government reacted, you know, 80, almost 80 years ago and creating this like wonderful chain of human stories one going into the other there it's like nesting eggs or something the russian dolls talk about creating that narrative because it's really exciting to read you know the stories of all these people and one goes into the other and high necks around and, and you know the other person i thought who was really interesting is jill tippett tipper Tartar, yep. Tartar, uh, yep. who's, uh, I, I I imagine, is the basis of the Jodie Foster character yes. in Contact. Yep. And she's a really interesting character, too, because she pops up early in SETI, and she's still around now. Yes, and she be, she is the first scientist to dedicate their entire career to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, to, to the SETI work, and is a founder of... Uh, what's known as the SETI Institute, which is, you know, really the premier research center today on all of the questions around the astronomical and scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence across the universe. And, and, and part of the challenge of this from an intellectual history is uh, you end up with this, you know, funny and, and I argue false divide between the it, what history and journalists treat, I think, as the like kooky UFO people here on Earth 
and the serious scientists doing serious astronomy out across the universe in the SETI work, whereas they are very much wrapped up in the same story and also uh, aren't necessarily as far apart intellectually as you might imagine. Um, you know, what, uh, I, we've, we talked about the sort of intellectual feud um, between Carl Sagan and J. Allen Hynek. And Hynek's, uh, uh, and Sagan's view and his skepticism of UFOs being alien visitors here wasn't in any way his, his disbelief that aliens weren't out there and could even visit Earth. It was actually, his argument was, Statistically, you would expect aliens to visit Earth every, you know, say 100,000 or 200,000 years. And that aliens would treat Earth not as a destination and civilization worthy of coming to study, uh, but more in the way that we treat, you know, a rest stop on the Jersey Turnpike as a resting spot when you're going from one interesting place to another and that Sagan's view was any alien visit to earth was more likely to be sort of coincidental and, uh, and a pass through something that, you know, again, occurred every hundred thousand, 200,000 years. And so Sagan's argument was not aliens don't visit earth. It's that, that thing that you saw last Tuesday is unlikely to be the one time that the aliens stopped by in this 100,000-year period. You know, too, uh, I thought that uh, the, the grouping of the uh, civilian scientists who came to, you know, uh, the fore in, in the early days for the UFO. They really, in a sense, set the scene uh, for Jill uh, Tarter. Who, and one of the things that was, she is so spunky. I mean, she was, they tried to keep her away from science at every single uh, turn. Every time she signed up for something, they said, girls, no. And she really put, persevered. And I think that's one of the themes of this book is the power of perseverance. Um, both Heineck and Jill Tarter, they really persevered in not in pushing a point of view, but in pushing the import of asking the questions and seeking the answers. Yes, and, and to me, that's actually the, the thing that I am frustrated with at the end of this is the government should be more interested in this question than it is that when you see what it has dedicated over decades in the military to the ufo study programs of project project blue book and sign and grudge you know it's like two people here three people there um you know even the the government funding for SETI efforts, uh, you know, is sort of turned on and off uh, every couple of years, depending on political whims. And even when we're funding it, you know, we're spending a couple hundred thousand dollars or a couple million dollars, um, you know, for the government, which is, you know, effectively zero dollars, like, you know, uh, that... The, the government efforts, both on the UFO side and the SETI side, you know, round down to zero on the scale of the U.S. military and the U.S. federal budget. And that there's a lot of interesting stuff out there that we could be learning in this, even if none of the answer turns out to be aliens. And, and, and I talk about this towards the end of the book, that you know, there's meteorological science here, uh, astronomical science, atmospheric science that we probably uh, are, 
uh, need to solve in order to untangle what UFOs and UAPs turn out to be. Um, and then there's this category that I think is probably physics that we don't yet understand that, um, you know, we need to be really humble about how new our understanding of so much of the world around us really is. And, you know, when you look back across even the things that we know about earth, um, you know, George Washington lived and died never knowing that there were dinosaurs. Like we did not discover the first dinosaur until the early 1800s. Um, you know, as late as the 1850s, uh, Western scientists believed that gorillas were a mythical creature like yetis or unicorns. Um, you know, these are, uh, things that, you know, we now very much understand about our, our world today, but are still learning about. You know, when I was a kid, um, we thought that dinosaurs were scaly. And now, you know, we have come to understand that they were heavily feathered um, and, you know, actually sort of look like the birds that they have evolved um, into across eons. You know, we still... Um, you know, we we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the bottom of the of the sea, um, and and by the way, uh, you know, you you want sort of like one simple astounding fact um, about how new our search for alien life is. We haven't even looked at the surface of the moon yet to see if there is an alien space lander anywhere else on the moon like the one that we left there in the Apollo program. Like we haven't even looked at the moon comprehensively to see if there's like alien craft on the moon. Um, and that we, this is sort of all even more true, I think, when you get into physics. Um, Avi Loeb, who, who I talked about, who's one of the sort of primary uh, enthusiasts and backers of the SETI efforts today, um, you know, he talks about that the when the world's oldest woman died earlier this year, she was a French nun, she was 118 years old. Everything that we know about relativity and quantum physics was learned in her lifetime. And Imagine what we will learn about physics in the next human lifetime. You know, imagine what we could learn in 500 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years if human civilization lasts that long. And when you get into, uh, you know, when you sort of talk about, Rick, the um, you know, sort of the hope and wonder and optimism at the core of this book, to me, like one of the real messages I come away from this quest with is why humans need to take care of ourselves and our planet is that we have so much more to learn if we give ourselves as a civilization the time and space to do it. And that we, you know, imagine what we will learn in 10,000 years if we can, you know, avoid nuclear war and solve climate change and, you know, avoid deadly diseases, you know, that there's just, a, that there's a lot of cool stuff out there that I hope we give ourselves time to understand. Uh, and, and this book is a wonderful statement. I, I think of all the lives and all the characters in this book, it's really well, each of them is really well defined and described and this must have taken a monumental amount of research. Talk about, you know, the many books that you read and essentially wrote that are not actually on the shelf doing this, because this is really a, a beautifully architected piece of prose. Just from beginning to end, it's a, it's a bullet read. You just can't turn the pages fast enough. And at the very end, you are left thinking, wow, this is really great. Humans are not too too bad. Yeah. 
Um, it, yeah, it was a really fun and interesting topic to to research um, because for me, a lot of the science was new. Um, you know, I am not someone who can quote or could not before this book quote UFO encounters uh, chapter and verse. And I really come away convinced that there are some core mysteries here that we have not solved. Um, and you know, one of the things that Heineck becomes sort of fascinated by as he goes through this intellectual evolution is the sort of credible witnesses who have no apparent reason to come forward with their UFO encounters. Um, and th there's one case that he talks about and he cites that really stuck with me, uh, which is in, in 1964, a, this police officer in Socorro, New Mexico, um, named Lonnie Zamora, who is out chasing a speeder on the outskirts of the desert town um, in New Mexico, uh, sees, hears an explosion and sees off in the desert what he thinks is an overturned car that he then tries to respond to and drive out to. And as he's sort of bumping up and down over the road or over the desert to get there, you know, it's coming in and out of view. And he sees what he d later describes as sort of two mid-sized figures, not fully grown adults, but larger than children who are outside of the craft. And as he gets closer, they get inside the craft and the craft flies away. And he is really sort of shaken by this experience. Um, there are witnesses who back up his story. Um, you know, there's a New Mexico state trooper who arrives on the scene a couple of minutes later who sees him, uh, you know, sort of traumatized by whatever the thing is that he saw. There's some physical evidence that backs up the idea that there was something in the desert there. Um, the FBI responds, the military responds, Heineck ends up going out there. Um, and, you know, Heineck's interviews Zamora and he's like, look, this is a like respected small town cop. Like this, this guy has no reason to come forward with a UFO sighting. And to the contrary, actually a great deal of credibility to lose by coming forward and reporting a UFO encounter. And he has a totally normal life before that and totally normal life after that. You know, it's not that he goes on to say that, you know, the aliens come by every Thursday afternoon and have tea with him. Um, you know, that he just, he has this one really strange encounter and goes on with his life. And that there are, you know, there, there are not, tens of thousands of Lonnie Zamora's over the years, but you know, there are scores or a couple hundred of them. Um, people who really have no, no apparent reason to report the things that they report seeing and encountering. Um, and that there to me really is this sort of central corpus or mystery that we really don't understand. And, and that idea of the, the kind of the central mystery is, you know, it speaks to not just the idea of UFOs, but also, as you pointed out, the idea, is there a God? Is there a life on other planets? It's a, it's humanity asking a bigger question of itself, one that does not necessarily admit an easy answer, and I think that the the character work you do too, just in creating the different people who you weave throughout the the story. For example, you mentioned earlier Sagan; he is a fascinating character in this book. Um, talk, talk about you know the individual humans uh, uh, who are investigating this and something that they un probably going in and understand 
there's no hope of really getting an answer in their lifetime. Yeah, and that is is part of this part of the math that is so challenging about this is you know embarking on SETI is almost certainly laying the groundwork for people, you know, perhaps many generations from now finally solving the mystery that you will probably never solve in your lifetime. Um and you know some of that is you know just the math of outer space you know we send you know we uh we have sent a couple of messages out into space that will take you know thousands of years to arrive at their destination uh if they are discovered at all and at which point they will then come back to uh us you know thousands of years hence um and that you know a lot of we are the technologies that we are studying the heavens with are so tiny uh in terms of the percentage of the sky that they have looked at and the percentage of signals that we uh are, are trying to detect that um you know it even doing this thoroughly will take generations, um, you know, if not, you know, millennia. Now, um, as a writer, you, you um, create this great book that itself asks a question. Do you see this book leading you to another book or another place that is similar or different or are how has the work that you've done in this book, looking at both the science side and the human side of this, um, influenced you as a writer? Yeah, it, um, you know, I think it is underscored for me. Um, you know, I, I am a hopeful, optimistic person, you know, at my core being, um, you know, I... I think, you know, the best part of being a journalist and a writer is the the ability to, you know, explore your curiosities and, you know, explore and try to understand the world and then, you know, turn around and get the chance to e explain that to other people and, and to, you know, carry that knowledge forward. And for me, that's, you know, what was really exciting about this book and that it, it makes me, uh, it really, I think, implanted a humility about how much weirder the world is than we probably think it is and how little of the world around us we actually understand. The new book by Garrett Graff is UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Thank you for joining me, Garrett. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for reading, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.